Hardware to Save a Planet explores the technical innovations that are giving us hope in the fight against climate change. Each episode focuses on a specific climate challenge and explores an emerging physical technology solution with the person bringing it into reality. I'm your host, Dylan Garrett. Hello and welcome to Hardware to Save a Planet. We have a very timely guest today as we've been seeing massive heat waves roll through Europe and the US over the past few weeks and people are really cranking up the AC. It's becoming really clear that air conditioning has become a necessary part of life for more and more people. It's not just about comfort, but it's about saving lives in many cases. But it's also this part of this vicious cycle because while it keeps us cool when it's hot outside, it's also a major contributor to global warming. Cooling our buildings uses 10% of total energy globally. It's the fastest growing use of electricity around the world. Recently, the International Energy Agency called this one of the most critical blind spots in today's energy debate. So Daniel Betts and his company, Blue Frontier, are tackling a lot of the environmental problems with air conditioning head-on with a really game-changing technology. To introduce Daniel quickly, he's the CEO and founder of Blue Frontier. He is an engineer with a PhD in mechanical engineering. He's been working in the energy technology space for 25 years. I've learned in getting to know him that he is driven as much by improving human health and equity as he is by fighting climate change. And I just want to say, I think that's a really good mentality for all of us to have as the two are so closely linked. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. And it's an incredible pleasure. I just heard that there's some exciting news to share about Blue Frontier. So let's start with that before we get yeah. into the, the rest of this stuff. So we just closed our Series A funding round. So we had an equity funding round. It was led by Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Bolo Earth Ventures, and 2150. And also we had within the investment group, Modern Niagara. So we're really excited. It gives us the capacity to move at a much faster rate and also to bring product to market. Our internal logo is, we say, we must do this before it's too late. So inside, we're always saying before it's too late. So this will allow us to really deliver on the promise of the extraordinary technology that we have, the responsibility to usher to the world. That's so awesome. Congratulations to you and the team. I'm really happy to hear that. And it's a nice positive backdrop for the conversation today. Thanks. Maybe before we get into kind of the details of Blue Frontier, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your background and your inspirations. What brought you to working on climate change? I have kids <laughs> and I love this planet and <laughs> it's our only one, right? So I'm a nature lover and I believe deeply in the fact that I've been able to receive education and opportunities in my life that have gotten me to the point where I can come up with solutions to serious problems. And therefore, it's my responsibility to come up with solutions to serious problems. And there's no bigger problem than combating climate change. So in my mind, I have been working towards trying to figure out what are the biggest problems, the most difficult problems, and, and trying to figure out whether I can provide value to finding a solution. And that has led to Blue Frontier and the work that we're doing now. As a matter of background, again, I was born in Panama and I grew up in Panama. So I'm Panamanian by birth. and I grew up with a sense of understanding that the development of the world, <laughs> of the nations of the world, require access to energy and access to energy that is low cost and uncomplicated. And also it allow, it requires access to the infrastructures 
that provide productivity and health and welfare. And air conditioning is right at the intersection of all those things. So it is a natural place for me to go. And also now I live in South Florida where we think about air conditioning a lot. (laughs) And so we are working in this field sort of it's a natural thing for us, I guess. Yeah, I was wondering about that. If Blue Frontier had been was based in Alaska or something, you think it'd be a little bit harder to to motivate the team <laughs> on a daily basis? <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, I, I would say that civilization in this area of the country is dependent on air conditioning, and that's something that is is happening across the world as we grow our cities and our infrastructure and the temperatures increase. As you said earlier, air conditioning is moving from something that just provides comfort to something that is indispensable. Mm. Why is it so important for life as it is today around the world? Yeah. So without just talking about the fact that the world is warming, air conditioning already is a principal determinant to of productivity and health outcomes. So access to air-conditioned spaces allows us also to safeguard assets that we own because they're not subject to environmental changes that destroy them. So and also access to air conditioning has been linked to our capacity to have high levels of cognitive abilities as we work during the day. It's very difficult to work in, in something when you're truly uncomfortable and your body is spending energy and, and effort trying to respond to these environments that are difficult to work in. So air conditioning access actually is important for human development in the society or in the world that we live in today. Just recently, there was a a Lancet study, it's a journal publication or a journal publisher that for medical things, and they published Hidden Health, where they linked and they provided a, a clear link between air conditioning and the capacity of people to live long lives, comfortable lives, and longevity, overall longevity. Also, he related deaths is the number one environmental reason people die, right? So the in the United States already, the weather-related events associated with heat cause more deaths than any other weather-related event. Wow. And so air conditioning, even in this country, is essential for us to, again, live nice, comfortable lives. Now, global climate change is creating extreme temperatures and is also increasing the temperatures in our cities in the summer, creating events that are extreme weather events, mostly on the heat side, which requires air conditioning. So right now we're seeing things that... We're breaking records on top temperatures, and that is limiting. It's, it's actually creating deaths, creating people. It's limiting people's capacity to cope with heat, and it also has another sinister side on the electric utility and our capacity to create renewable energy. In that, when everybody turns their air conditioners at the same time, it creates a peak demand for electricity, and that demand is very difficult to fulfill with. The infrastructures we have available to us, in particular renewable energy infrastructure. So you see situations where during, as the weather becomes hotter, electricity prices increase, the reliability of the electric grid drops. We throw away all the plans for renewable energy out the window because we need to be able to fulfill those peak demands. So solar and wind are variable production, have variable production capabilities. And the peak demand, unfortunately for air conditioning, tends to occur we call it a post-solar peak demand, which is happening in the early afternoon to late afternoon when solar power is waning. And so it sort of falls in between solar and wind power, which tends to come in in earnest at night. And so the only way to cover it is with burning fossil fuels or by installing a very large amount of batteries. 
And those are major issues because since it's occurring only in a very short period of time, and in some places it's seasonally concentrated also, the investment in assets to cover air conditioning demand, this peak air conditioning demand, has a very, very low return investment. So it's investment that is critical, but the asset utilization, which means how many times you need this asset to run, is very low because it's occurring during those very harsh peak events that will occur for you to be able to keep the lights on. And so it just makes that price of electricity go higher. It makes the comfort of people, makes the capacity for us to put renewable energy on the uh, decarbonization of the grid and and install renewable energy at a cost-effective manner makes it much higher, makes those investments much higher for infrastructure. And once again, it's indispensable, not to mention the fact that air conditioning actually produces uses a refrigerant that is more than 2,000 times more powerful greenhouse gases and more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2, which means that it has an outsized effect of exacerbating global climate change. So yeah, air conditioning is an interesting problem because it's it's sort of the medicine that we need in order to live comfortably and healthy lives and, and productive lives. But at the same time, is <laughs> in particular as, as the temperatures increase, but it is the thing that stands in a way for us to prevent these temperatures increasing. So the medicine is the, also the disease. And there's a feedback loop between the two that exacerbates each other's problem. Truly a- Our goal is to completely eliminate the problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's truly a, a necessary evil. And yeah, I was kind of laughing myself this morning. It's like the perfect technology for an evil genius. It's yeah, exactly. the more you use it, the more you need it kind of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a, well, like um, cigarettes and nicotine and yeah. are things that they themselves create the demand for themselves. Right. And so, and in fact, it is the fastest growing appliance business in the world. It's the fastest growing use of electricity, but also from a building equipment standpoint, it is also the fastest growing market. And so it offers an opportunity for a replacement of the existing hundreds years old technology for something that really does not create, solves all those problems. And in the end also could work better than what we have right now in terms of the technology. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're focusing on. Ourselves yeah. On. yeah. What about kind of total energy use, is that a way to think about it? Or is that not really so much of the problem? It's more about when the energy is used. So when the energy use is the principal problem, but the energy use is definitely a problem also. It means that the infrastructure needs to be put in place and that infrastructure is not always, is not growing at the speed that the demand for air conditioning is growing. And also, so it puts at risk the robustness of the electric service, but also it is energy that people pay for. So we need to increase the efficiency of those units also in order to reduce their impact on the pocketbooks of the building owners and the the people that use air conditioning. And maybe just quickly on the refrigerants. So Freon is sort of the brand name a lot of people are familiar with and has a really bad rap. Is that still, are the really bad refrigerants like that still used or is that part of it getting better? So the refrigerant story is one that, that is interesting. There was a big change out of refrigerants. So Freon is sort of the name that we all know for refrigerants because it's a cultural name, but it's not really a good technical name of the refrigerants that we use today. So we changed out refrigerants with the Montreal Protocol to the fact that they were depleting the ozone layer. And so we did an extraordinary global job, right, of 
identifying a problem, the ozone layer is being depleted and it's going to be horrible for us if we continue to spew out these ozone depleting chemicals and refrigerants, the refrigerants, the conventional refrigerants that we used to use, Freon, was a major destroyer of the ozone layer. We changed out of those. So we, the refrigerants that we use now are not ozone depleting, but they have very high global warming potential, which means that they contribute to global warming more than CO2 on a per mass basis. So the most used present refrigerant is called Fortin A, which has over 2,000 times more greenhouse gas impact than CO2. So the, GW, the global warming potential is over 2,000 times. So a very small amount creates a lot of effect on greenhouse effect. And depending on what you read, there have been various ex- estimates, but generally around 5% of the global warming that we're experiencing right now is associated with refrigerant leakage, right? So, and remember, I told you this refrigerant was changed out and put into market during the Montreal Protocol, right? So we're talking about something that just occurred like in the 80s to 90s, right? And that's the effect that it's had until today, around 5% of what we're experiencing. So if we continue going this this route, we (laughs) with the uptake of air conditioning into the market, becomes really difficult for us to really become optimistic about the future of our capacity to resolve global warming and climate change because we can't create infrastructure fast enough. And in the renewable energy side, to meet the demand that is occurring, the demand is variable and it's sort of outside of where renewable energy is. And this equipment, just putting it out will create, forget about the electricity consumption and everything else, just the refrigerant within it is going to create outsized effects of global warming. So all of those things must be fixed. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about what Blue Frontier is doing to address those problems. So we've developed technology that addresses every single aspect of the problem that we've discussed about air conditioning. Our technology is three times more efficient than the conventional air conditioning using standard methods to calculate that efficiency or comparative efficiency. In actual implementation, that's a 60 to 90% reduction in the energy consumption of the air conditioning hours compared to a conventional unit. And that 60 to 90% is a, is a range because it all depends on how you use air conditioning, where you put it, and the building type. But it's always a very large number, which is uh, what we target. The other thing that we're doing is that the air conditioning technology that we've developed, by the way that it operates, it has energy storage. So it's part of the inherent operation of the unit which allows us to use electricity at the times when renewable energy is abundant, but not use electricity when air conditioning loads are high and when the peak demand would normally have occurred. So it makes it such that we are now in sync. You not only have we reduce the energy consumption, but we're now in sync with renewable energy generation. And thus we're supporting the renewable energy infrastructure in the grid and reducing the need for picking plants and for battery energy storage and all the transmission and distribution lines that are required to meet that peak into the future. We also dramatically eliminate the use of refrigerant and enable the use of very low GWP refrigerants. So the way that our system works, it does contain a small amount of refrigerant, but that amount is much less than a conventional system. And the way that our system is architected, that refrigerant never comes into contact with the part of the air conditioner where air is actually being cooled. So the refrigerant is in our system is not used to cool down or dehumidify air. 
And in doing so, it opens up the opportunity for using alternative low GWP refrigerants that cannot be used with conventional air conditioners because they may have, because they typically classified as as slightly flammable. So it opens up, puts us in a regulatory condition where those refrigerants can be used. Overall, with present technology, we would be reducing the refrigerant effect to global warming of our system compared to the others by more than 85%. And then we are actually a better air conditioner. So one of the things that we recognize is that technology doesn't only have to change sort of these big global problems. At the end, it must be substantially better to the actual air conditioner user than the previous technology. And so the previous technology does a really good job of dropping temperatures inside of buildings, but a really bad job of controlling humidity in buildings. And air conditioning and human comfort have two principal components, humidity control and uh, air temperature control or indoor air temperature control. The conventional technology, so what it does is that it passes air through a cold refrigerant and that air then is made cold, but it doesn't dehumidify unless you overcool the air to condense the water out of the air and then bring it into the building, causing it such that if you ever stand close to any vent of any air conditioning system today, you're going to be very cold and uncomfortable because it's almost 100% relative humidity air at a temperature that is extremely comfortable for human, for contact with humans. So our system actually controls humidity and temperature independent of each other. So we can actually dial in a humidity point and temperature point that is optimum for the building and its users. And we can change that during the day and during the seasons to maintain that optimum comfort point. And all of that we do while leveraging those changes to further increase the efficiency of our unit. So you'll end up with a smart air conditioner that actually makes it such that you're comfortable throughout the entire year and throughout the entire day. It allows us to regulate between the different temperature variations that may exist between one side of the building and another and different people's preferences. And it's consuming much less energy and it's tied to renewable energy. So all of those things form a quite a disruptive product compared to the conventional technology. I'm sold. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's a pretty convincing breakdown. Can you quickly describe how it works? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. How do you address all those problems in one system? So this original technology actually comes from National Renewable Energy Labs, with whom we've worked for quite a bit of time now. Even Blue Frontier had been founded. In fact, the technology, we became aware of how extraordinary that technology was, that we became brave to start Blue Frontier because we felt like, wow, this is <laughs> this has to be commercialized. So fundamentally, what, what the technology is, so we grab what in air conditioning or engineering jargon, we call it liquid desiccant. But a liquid desiccant is a, in our case, it's a salt solution. And it's a salt solution that is special to us that has a very high affinity to water. So in nature, you would never find it just as a liquid because it would absorb the water right from the atmosphere to get itself into solution. So it's very high affinity to water. Now, the salt solution, what we do is that we increase its concentration by evaporating a portion of the water. And then we convey this salt solution such that air passes over the salt solution in a special heat exchanger. And that, and in doing so, the salt solution, which is a high concentration, wants to absorb water from the atmosphere, absorbs water from the air that we're trying to air condition. So the first step of air conditioning, remember, air conditioning has two components, dehumidification and temperature control. So in that way, we've dehumidified the air. 
we do it in a way that is isothermal, meaning that we don't change the temperature of the air as it's being, as the water is being absorbed by the liquid desiccant or the salt solution. But we end up with internal to our heat exchanger, something that is akin to a like desert air. So it's dehumidified room outdoor air. And what we do then is that we cool down the air by using a portion of this dry air that we've created, this desert air that we've created. And we do something called indirect evaporative cooling. So we grab a portion of it around 30% and we put a little bit of water into it. That air, it's been dehumidified. It absorbs that water. It drops its temperature like an absorption process, right? That drop in temperature actually drives the temperature reduction for the bulk air, the 70% of the bulk air that's going into the building. And so you end up with low temperature, low humidity air. Now, we also end up with low concentration liquid desiccant because that desiccant or that salt solution has absorbed the water from the air that we're, we're going to cool. So what we do is that we need to make that liquid desiccant or salt solution back, put it back into a high concentration state. So in our system, we use a small heat pump where we take electricity to drive a small compressor. That compressor increases. Here's where we use a little bit of refrigerant, less than the other systems because of the efficiency gains. But we increase the pressure of that refrigerant, which creates heat or increases temperature. We use that to increase the temperature of the liquid desiccant, which in doing so is like when you start simmering soup, right? It evaporates some of the water. And then we recover the water that we've evaporated by using the cold side of the heat pump to drop down the temperature of the air that has captured this water. And when we capture that water back into our unit and we end up with water and high concentration liquid desiccant, which is stored, ready to be used when air conditioning loads come back. So that process of regeneration can occur at any time when you need air conditioning, all you need to do is convey water and liquid desiccant, high concentration liquid desiccant over to the air conditioning side, which is the seed exchanger that I mentioned earlier. I hope that wasn't understandable. <laughs> no, it's, it is complex and I'll, I'll have to find a diagram or something, but it's really helpful to kind of have a sense of what's going on. Yeah, we have a couple of explainer videos in our website that can be useful. Oh, awesome. But yeah, we'll put some links. Yeah, thermodynamic cycles in general tend to be on the complex side. Right, right. <laughs> no, that was very well explained. And we'll put some links to those videos so people can who want to can kind of dig in a little bit more. But I think a couple of things worth really highlighting there. So one, you talk about storage, energy storage. And when I first saw that on, I think on your website, I figured, oh, there must be a battery in this system that's storing electricity so they can then use that. But it's actually much more integral to the system. It sounds like the energy storage is actually in the sense that you're essentially regenerating that desiccant. You're drying it out when energy is cheap and available from renewable sources so that it can be used in this process when the cooling is needed. Is that the right way to think about it? That's perfect. Perfect explanation. And an interesting aspect of it is that the energy content here is based on the energy of evaporation of the water, right? So that absorb that the phase change of water from liquid to gas and from gas to liquid as it being is absorbed and dissolved from the liquid desiccant. There's a lot of energy in phase change. And so in fact, our liquid desiccants volumetric energy density is double from an energy standpoint and just the content of energy is more than double that of if you were to try to do this with ice. So it's a very high energy dense form of storing energy. It's dedicated to cooling, to creating air conditioning system, but it's a very low cost way and very high energy density way 
of storing energy. And is it a consumable in your system or it's, it can be regenerated and reused indefinitely? It's regenerated. Yeah, there's no physical degradation because again, it's at the end, it's just a sole solution. Right. Yeah. And then the other concept here is evaporative cooling, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. I, I know like growing up, I don't know if this actually worked, but we used to take a pan of water and a fan and blow the fan over the water to try to get right. that evaporative, evaporative cooling effect where the water is absorbed into the air and that absorbs some of the heat, thermal energy out of, out of the air. Absolutely. So it sounds like you're using that general concept, which has been around for a long time, but you're doing it in a smart way because I, as I understand it, the evaporative cooling only works in places where there's low, already low humidity. Exactly. So what you're able to do is dry out the incoming air and then with that desiccant and then very specifically add water to cool to the level you need to. Exactly, exactly. And we're doing it actually a little bit more sophisticated than a conventional evaporative cooler in that we are adding water only to 30% of the air that we dehumidified. And And where that occurs within our heat exchanger is not in contact with the bulk of the flow that's going to go, that is being cooled. And so you don't add water. So you're like, we've dehumidified, but we haven't rehumidified the air in order to drop its temperature. So the majority of the air that's going, so the, the air that's going into the building stays dehumidified. So the humidity has been controlled and low temperature. And we only add that water to that 30% that is exhausted after it gives off its thermal energy to the bulk of the bulk. Yeah. Got it. So that's critical in your ability to actually control comfort in the sense that you're controlling both humidity and temperature. Exactly. Yeah. It's amazing. I think we'll hit some more technical details in, in a little bit, but maybe just to get kind of get some of the business context. So you've just described the system. I guess, yeah, business model. What are you selling and who are your customers? So we're starting with the commercial building space first. And a couple of reasons for that. One is that the commercial building space is dominated by a certain type of air conditioner that is called a rooftop unit. And anybody that has ever gone on an airplane or you <laughs> go to a high rise and you look out or go to the backside of any shopping mall, etc., you'll see that there are all these boxes in t- on top of buildings. Those are their rooftop units, packaged air conditioning systems that feed the through the roof, feed the building. And that around 76% of the entire market for commercial building air conditioning is dominated by what we call the five to 10 ton rooftop unit. And when I say tons, it's not actually weight. It's the way that we, (laughs) here in the United States, we mention the cooling capacity that the unit is doing. And the tonnage is is referenced to ice when it used to be that we cooled everything with ice. Yet another super confusing Super confusing. <laughs> Measurement unit we use. Yeah, archaic things that just stay with us. But if I, like, a, just to put it in perspective, like a my household compressor or air conditioner is on the order of three to four ton. Yeah, so actually on average in the United States, the load for a home is around one to 1.5 tons. Okay. The most sold air conditioner in the United States is three tons. Okay. And then here in the South of the United States, we're looking at houses. Three to a three bedroom home, it's looking at around a four to five ton air conditioner. Okay. So it gives you a sense of what those sizes look like. For commercial buildings, then it grows to five, five to 10 tons. And the market is actually really nice in a way that since these are standard units that 
and every building has multiples of those. So how air conditioning loads are met in the commercial building space is that you tend to just, if you, if you have a 15 ton load, you buy three, five tons or a 10 ton and a five ton, right? So you it gives the building the flexibility by having multiple units. So from a business standpoint, to us, it means that if we target that market, we can develop a product that is a direct replacement of existing that, that existing product. And we would have the capacity to sell multiple units to every customer, which is the building owners. Every building has multiple units and every building owner tends to own multiple buildings. And so the value of each customer is, is very high. So it's a really nice market. And it's dominated by something that we can create economies of scale in because it's a single product or a single group of products, and we can create economies of scope. So when we do installation or we do servicing, et cetera, it's all concentrated in a, we're, we're doing multiple units at a time. And we can also concentrate in geographical locations where commercial buildings are. So it's a very nice market to start creating a, a wave of disruption in the, in the air conditioning space. But that market actually has a serious fundamental problem in that the majority the way that people, the building owners buy air conditioners tends to be either at the beginning of a construction project or when an existing unit has failed. So when you're selling something into the beginning of a building project, it takes time to sell into it. So that decision-making takes time, particularly for new technology, because it has to be architected into the building. And stakeholders that develop that for new construction are not completely aligned with the ideas of energy efficiency because they have other priorities that may be associated with the new construction project, like speed of construction, return on investment of the actual construction project, permitting, etc. And then when a system breaks, the majority of building owners, they are looking to replace the moribund or non-longer working unit as fast as possible. So the decision-making really is about cost and what's in stock, right? So and that's the reason why, even though um, there are different efficiency points of air conditioners you can buy, the market is concentrating the lowest efficiency systems that are compliant with regulations. And that dominates the market. So we noticed that and we said, okay, we, there is an opportunity here with this new technology to change how we sell air conditioning such that we have a higher level of uptake and reduce the, the cost of customer acquisition. And the biggest driver for acquisition of a new air conditioner or an air conditioner in particular replacement of existing units is cost to the building owner. So, and the other thing that we recognize is the majority of commercial buildings are not building owner occupied. It's occupied by tenants. And so the tenants pay the electric bill, but they don't pay for the capital cost of equipment. The building owner pays for the capital cost of equipment. They don't pay for electric bills. Therefore, the tenant can ask for higher efficiency things, but the building owner is ultimately the decision maker and other things become more important to both groups in reality. So we recognize that and we realize that if we make our unit zero upfront cost, there will be no reason for a building owner to say no to our unit. So that opened up a new business model that we're calling HVAC as a service, where we will go in and offer our units at front cost and transform it into a subscription-based system where 
the subscription cost is less than the cost of the utility bill that the tenant already had. And so we, in that way, we break the incentive, the perverse incentive structure that exists in the market, and we use it in our favor to create longer lasting relationships with both the tenant and with the building owner. And it allows us to make it such that the sales process is fast and uncomplicated. And what we are also targeting is because the unit have energy storage, it's a behind the meter energy storage device, it allows us to provide services by orchestrating the operations of these units, providing services to the utility of energy ser- energy load leveling and virtual power plant and energy storage behind the meter energy storage, in particular in places where there are feeder networks that are already congested. And there's a lot of value to that. So in doing so, we can underwrite a big portion of the capital costs associated with introduction of these units into the space and allowing us to then do it at a zero upfront cost. We end up with long-term relationships. The lifetime value of each one of our customers becomes really high. And we then end up with pretty large margins associated with each one of the units that we deliver to the market. So it becomes a win-win-win for all the parties involved. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's something you can only do, like traditional HVAC companies couldn't switch to this same model because they're not actually offering a reduction in the utility bill, right? It works because... Absolutely. Yeah, got it. So, and it's even the change from the low efficiency air conditioners that you have today to a high efficiency air conditioner that you have today, that improvement in efficiency is not for with, with conventional technology is not high enough for that tenant and the building owner to truly perceive a sea change in the way that they consume electricity. And that's because of the seasonality associated with air conditioning, the dependency on weather that air conditioning has, and also small variations in how you use your building. Let's say you decide that you're going to leave the door open for a while or the kitchen installs a new thing, whatever. Those things overwhelm those supposed change savings that you were going to get if you have just incremental improvements in the efficiency of the unit. So that is why our unit has to have an overwhelming difference in the energy consumption. And it's going to be right at the nameplate that you'll be able to see it. So we see, for example, how the LED market took over. No one really asks the question when there's changing an LED. Like, I wonder what my return on investment is on this LED. No, because you see the nameplate, the other one is consuming 60 watts and this one's 10 watts. Of course, this is going to save me money. I don't have to worry about of timing how long I'm going to leave my light on. The same thing will happen with our air conditioning product. And then, of course, the tenants are going to get be in a much more comfortable space. And they're going to see also an air conditioner that is smart and adaptive to their needs. So with that, are you focusing more on the new construction space or replacing aging equipment? Or does it matter? Replacing existing equipment. That's the okay. largest portion of the market. And we can actually jumpstart it. The majority of the air conditioning systems that are in place today are more than five years old. They're low efficiency units and we can just come in and provide a overall better service. As the existing air conditioning systems continue to age, their maintenance costs are high, their electricity costs are increasing. And in fact, they don't really do a good job of cooling the space. Another characteristic of the conventional air conditioner is that as temperatures go up, their electricity consumption goes up and the cooling capacity of the unit drops. So in those really hot days, the conventional air conditioners have a really hard time just keeping you cool, but it's consuming much more electricity than before. Our unit, just the fundamental way that it works, 
does the opposite as the temperature outside increase, our efficiency increases and our electricity consumption drops and our cooling capacity goes higher. So we will provide an overall better air conditioner. It will be like switching over from your Honda Civic over to the top line Tesla (laughs) 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 car paying zero costs, zero incremental costs associated with it. As you know, Synapse has done a little bit of work in this space with NREL on developing some early prototypes of the technology this is based on. And I think one thing that stands out to me from that process is you start with a simulation that allows you to model all the fluid flows and heat transfer and everything. And that shows this beautiful performance in theory from your simulation. But then the challenges of taking that simulated model of a system and turning it into something you can actually build and will actually perform the same is a massive challenge. Yeah. Has that been the experience of Blue Frontier as well? (laughs) Absolutely. So the model often tells you to do things that are really impractical from any sort of manufacturing or prototyping standpoint. And so we make concessions on performance to enable manufacturability, easy prototyping and deployment. So that's why 2017 to now, (laughs) it's a long period of time. (laughs) And that's because we have concentrated on making sure that we have a mechanical overall design that we're feeling pretty good, what we are calling here, that fulfills the requirements of a minimum viable disruptive problem, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just a minimum viable problem, but a minimum viable disruptive problem. The next step, it's actually a substantial jump. So that we're undergoing right now, which is we have identified construction mechanical features and system integration designs that we can make in prototyping. And in prototyping, we're sort of simulating what would be done in mass production, but it's not the same. It can never be the same because you don't have a robot doing it and and you don't have automated. You end up with handmade things or using manufacturing processes that are not really that scalable for prototyping. So the challenge is really to infer what will happen when you make the investment into tooling and the high capital expenditures associated with pilot manufacturing or manufacturing with a certain level of uncertainty on how the change from prototype processes to mass production processes will affect the overall performance of your unit. Now, we do have an advantage. So this is sort of a philosophical idea in my mind, but when I started becoming brave enough to start this business, one of the things that I wanted to make sure is that I had enough margin on the performance compared to the conventional systems that we can actually have a pretty high probability of creating a minimum viable disruptive product that meets most of the things that I talked about even at the beginning. And so the only way to do that is to become brave and do some of the things that are truly disruptive. And so bet on the things that were required to enable these things. One of which is anybody that has experience with liquid desiccants and you at Synapse have, the salt solutions, the standard salt solutions that have been used in the past for dehumidification, et cetera, are highly corrosive. And so therefore, you can only build the systems made of plastic materials or non-corrosive materials like titanium, et cetera. And so it just was not a viable, it created too much risk for us at the beginning. So we spent a lot of time investigating how to have liquid desiccants that were non-corrosive, but also enable us to have the performance of the conventional liquid desiccants. And we've arrived at the solution. And so we're really proud of, of the fact that we've overcome that problem. And that has opened up a slew of opportunities in mechanical design of manufacturing 
processes, prototyping, and performance enhancements that were impossible with the technology when we got it at the beginning. And just to illustrate some specifics there, I, I imagine because you're not tied to using plastic, you have new geometry opportunities from you can use sheet metal now that might be exactly. thinner so you, so you can get smaller or, or fluid channels closer together. You can also have higher heat transfer in places where you want it. Absolutely. Right? And it also eliminates a major failure point of conventional systems or prior systems. Right. So if you have a corrosive fluid, even though it may not be like all the other liquid desiccants that have been used in tradition, if you were someone were to look it up on the internet, they are pretty innocuous to the environment, except for the fact that it can eat away at metal things that may be part of your infrastructure in your building, etc. So by not having to worry about containment of the liquid desiccant to the level, we do maintain that, but to the level than that a conventional, the other technology needed to have it, it also reduces the complexity of how we do things. So yeah. Where do you see Blue Frontier in 10 years? And in this case, you likely don't have infinite money. Okay. So <laughs> I think that Blue Frontier will become a, and it to, will, will have two major components. One, it will be a supplier of its technology such that its partners around the globe can actually create air conditioning that is three times more efficient and has all these benefits and whatever other benefits that may be required in order to create products that are disruptive and enabling around the world. So we do have a vision of becoming the principal technology in the air conditioning space and enabling that technology to make sure that this technology gets to the largest amount of people as possible. Because again, we're, air conditioning is essential. The other side, so I think Blue Frontier will probably not be as much a vertical manufacturing company, but more of an enabler of the manufacturing of technology. We need to learn how to manufacture it in order to enable that. But I think that will create economies of scale, drop the price of things. It will create variability of product and, and expand the capacity of us to get to everyone. On the other side, I see Blue Frontier becoming integrally an integral part of the HVAC as a service business model and an enabler of it through technology, both on the digital side and also on the hardware side, and becoming an instrument of ensuring that HVAC as a service becomes widespread in the commercial building space and then in the residential building space in places where the financial institutions exist and the cost of capital is relatively low for us to be able to, to enable that. In doing so, we would increase the speed of, of replacement of existing units, in particular in places like here in the United States where we we're the last, you know, second largest consumer of that electricity. And also in doing so, I, I'm a big believer in, in social justice and equity, not by making sure that we have a very low cost of entry to acquire the technology, we would be providing this extraordinary technology and all its benefits to a wider range of individuals. It's not just a technology for the wealthy, it's a technology for everyone. So that's how I, I see Blue Frontier in, in 10 years is being a focal point for all these things to occur. Right. And really enabling a massive scale that can impact yes. globally, which brings up a question for me. And maybe it's a tricky question, so, but I'm really curious to get your take. So when I was reading about the history of AC, one thing I learned is that as the technology was proliferating and becoming cheaper and more prevalent, people building buildings started building buildings that weren't suited for the climate they were in. Yes. Because air conditioning sort of compensated for poor building practices. Maybe buildings were not as airtight, but it didn't matter because energy was cheap and you could have this air conditioner. 
Or like an example in hot climates, I think often you have sort of a shaded porch around the perimeter of a built of a house that has this like cool air barrier that helps keep the air cool inside the house. Yeah. How do you avoid as you make air conditioning less impactful and cheaper and proliferate that around the world? How do you avoid just amplifying that effect and actually not having a positive impact overall? So I think that no one now lives in a place that can be designed for its environment. I think we all live in a world of extreme uncertainty of what the weather will be. And I think that people will do what is necessary in order to survive. And I think air conditioning will be part of that. And in fact, air conditioner that has high reliability because it's not as dependent on the grid is going to become a part of that. And we enable that also. So I think that the vision of the past is changing on us. And I grew up in Panama. I didn't have air conditioning growing up. Like it wasn't in my house. My, my house and was mostly open to the environment to allow for the ocean breeze to pass in and cool it. And there were days I was hot and other days I wasn't. But I didn't think about air conditioning much. It wasn't a big deal. But that's changing. And it's because, again, people are searching for lower cost buildings, which doesn't allow for you to have large verandas and balconies and open structures that allow for breeze to come in, right? Like you're talking about densely populated cities. And then there's the other aspect of it is in that productivity is becoming more and more important. And that productivity is no longer like it's brain labor. It's no longer like manual labor necessarily for a lot of the middle class. And thus you do better for your assets and for your, for your own self. You'll do better if you're working in air conditioned space that are quiet and not dusty or open to the flow of traffic outside your window, etc. And all of that is driving the acquisition of urbanization or our urbanization and the growth of number of people in cities and density is driving air conditioning. And the best we can do is to enable that acquisition, but do it smartly. And, and who knows, maybe we are also enabling other implementation of other types of technologies at a lower cost. So one of the things that I dream about is that, well, we do this, is, is that by having this air conditioner become an energy storage device, it might enable you to have your own power generation. So now solar is enabled because the value of your solar panel is increased and the cost is reduced because you don't need as many batteries in order to keep it running. And it's covering the majority of your, the biggest load you had anyway, which is that air conditioning load. So I think we'll see more and more of us of Blue Frontier and its technology and all these derivatives and things that we're going to discover in the future, enabling people to live the way that they want to live. Good points. A few last questions to close us out. What's your perspective on the future of our planet and why? How optimistic or pessimistic are you? I am generally neutral. So there are a lot of sources of pessimism. (laughs) (laughs) But I believe that there are a lot of, and I am lucky that I get to do something that I think will help. And I get to work with people that are really, really way smarter than I am that are working on some things that will really help. and. That gives me a lot of hope when I see the environment for investment in clean tech, when I see the environment for implementation of clean tech. All of that gives me a lot of hope that maybe the wizards out there will figure out things that will alleviate the problem. However, I am cognizant of the fact that unless there is a fundamental change in how we think as a, that our model of our frame of mind model that we have for the development of the earth 
and the human species, we will have a really hard time getting to the finish line because we do not put value in things that don't bring money. And although they're extremely valuable. And so unless we start doing that, we finding value in the things that are invaluable, we will have a hard time getting there because there will always be a business to be done in things that exploit those things that we believe are are just there to, for the taking. And so I think that's happening. I think that little by little we're changing and we're re-evaluating who we are and where we're going. And I think that we need to provide people with the capacity to live decent lives of dignity without having to have the level of consumptions that we have had in the past. Who is one other person or company doing something to address climate change that's inspiring you? (laughs) It's a difficult question. I'll talk about an institution that gives me an enormous amount of hope, which represents a lot of companies. Actually, maybe, yeah, more than one institution. But we became part of the third derivative, which is an organization that is helping identify really amazing entrepreneurs with a very high variety of technologies, all of them addressing all the different aspects of things that affect climate change. I also should give a shout out to my investors who are all involved in trying to create the financial, put the financial resources into growing companies that are committed to tackling global climate change. So Breakthrough Energy Ventures and Volo Earth Ventures and 2150, they're financial investors. They want returns and all that, but they're thinking about putting the resources where I think the world needs it the most. And I think they're right, by the way. So anybody that wants to get involved in clean tech, everything will change. Everything has to change. So it is the time to go and take advantage of the new industrial revolution that is going to happen because there's no alternative. It has to happen. Awesome. Well said. Yeah, I'll check out Third Derivative. And you're right, the investors are a really critical part of the ecosystem. And it's awesome that they're seeing that opportunity and investing. Last question, what advice do you have for someone not working in climate tech today who wants to do something to help? I think the philosophical change needs to be spread and start looking at the way we live and the way things are to try to make sure that and the way we elect our officials, et cetera, what questions we ask, try to make sure that they are in service of the planet and our only home. And I think that that's important. It is important also to recognize that individuals have limited power on their own lives to take away the emissions that are coming from the largest polluters on earth. So the emissions are concentrated on a very small group of people and a very small group of companies. And so regulation is going to be essential (laughs) and for things to change. That, again, requires mobilization of people to organize themselves and say, yeah, I'm not willing to put my planet at risk. I want my children to have lives. And so if we all think that way, and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, we want to live in dignity. So let's ask for it. Well said. That's a good, inspiring note to close out on. Daniel, it's been really fun talking to you. I've learned a lot. And I'm inspired and I'm really excited to see what Blue Frontier does. Congratulations on the Series A again. (laughs) Thank you. And thanks a lot for your time. Excellent. Thank you, Dylan. Take care. Hardware to Save a Planet is brought to you by Synapse. To find out more about us and how we develop hardware solutions for the world's most ambitious companies, head to synapse.com. 
And then make sure to search for Hardware to Save a Planet in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere you like to listen. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Synapse, thanks for listening.